Section 26 of The American Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Egypt by Channing Arnold and Frederick J. Tapper Frost. Section 26. The Age of the Ruins. Part 2. Thus far, we have the most marked traces of Orientalism. Copan was probably an exact counterpart of the early cities of Cambodia and Ceylon, as Palenque would seem to be a replica of 7th century Borobudur. With the practical extinction of the foreign builders, the art would take upon itself, in the matter of decoration, a purely native character. Many ornamental ideas would, however, recommend themselves to the caciques, as, for instance, the lion seat, which, changed to represent the Central American jaguar, an animal probably held in veneration, would figure in the carvings. It is easy to imagine how the building art spread from Palenque, there would probably be two lines of advance, one through Chiapas into the Zapotec country and so on to the tableland of Mexico, and one up to Honduras and so to Yucatan. By the ninth century, it would have reached Chichen Itza on the one hand and possibly spread as far north as the city of Tula in Mexico. From the earliest times, Chichen must have been one of the most populous centers in Yucatan. The water problem is even today the greatest social and economic factor in the peninsula, and the existence of two huge natural reservoirs, such as the Cenotes at Chichen, must have meant an importance for the spot from the remotest times. When building was introduced into the country, the cacique of Chichen probably ranked high among the chiefs, and he would be sure to hear early of the marvelous buildings of stone that were being erected at Copan. Probably he might make a journey thither, while the builders of Copan were still living. Possibly he might invite some of them to Chichen to instruct his people in the art. Be this as it may, there would seem to be at least two distinct ages represented in the ruins of Chichen. The buildings still standing belong to a later period than those which crowned the now ruined mounds to the east and the southeast of the Castillo. These latter represent the old Chichen, built probably within a century of the arrival of the builders. They show signs of having gone to pieces through natural decay, rather than having been demolished by man, as in war. On excavation of the mounds, the walls and pillars of these buildings proved to be in fair preservation. With scarcely an exception, it would seem that the fall of the roof has been the real cause of the destruction of each edifice. The roofs in Mayan buildings are always the weakest spot Buildings which have been destroyed by a conquering people 
generally bear ample traces of such destruction. In the same way, buildings which have fallen through the natural process of decay demonstrate this fact by the state of their ruin. The buildings that stood on the mounds at Chichen have fallen before the hand of time. If a conquering tribe had taken Chichen from the Itzas, they would not have destroyed their buildings, but would have used them as did the Spaniards under Montejo. It was no case of modern artillery, when the buildings would naturally fall or be damaged in the conflict. The most destructive weapon the Indians had was the spear of hardened wood, or tipped with flint. And to attempt to destroy buildings as solid as those of Chichen, with such implements, would be about a great a task as an attempt to cut a full-sized croquelon with a pair of nail scissors. For these reasons, we venture to date the oldest buildings at Chichen about the ninth century, and we believe that our estimate would be corroborated by any expert architect. The later buildings are of far more recent date, but perhaps here it would be well to describe the mode of building and thus explain our reasons for modernizing Chichen. To be technical, the first part to examine in a building is its foundations. The ruins of Yucatan appear to lack nothing of solidity in this matter. Usually they are founded on truncated pyramids, which when intact would appear to be cut from solid rock. They are, however, not built, like the pyramids of Egypt, of solid blocks of stone, but are simply faced with stone slabs only a few inches thick. Beneath these, the pyramid is formed of loose building rubble and earth. The Chichen Castillo is a good example of Mayan building methods. The limestone slabs forming the face of the pyramid are less than a foot thick. Beneath them is loose rubble. Thus, should one of these facing slabs work out of place, when the wet season came, the rain would get in behind the slabs and quickly move the ones below out of their positions. The earth and rubble would be washed away in the wet season and crumbled away in the hot season, until in a few years there would be a perfect avalanche of these slabs from the top, falling, for lack of support, like a pack of cards. The stairway at the Castillo is formed of blocks of stone that but a short way into the pyramids. The consequence is that not one of the four stairways as built by the Indians could be ascended today unless you were an alpine climber willing to risk broken limbs. All the other buildings at Chichen illustrate the same careless methods of construction. The nunnery was built, as we have stated on page 101, at different periods or else the original design was added to. On the north side is a hole that has been made in the structure by a former owner of the Chichen Hacienda. This hole shows that the building is of the same material as the Castillo, but built in a different way. Being perpendicular, it was impossible to face it, as was the Castillo, 
after the rubble had been put in position. The walls must have been built first, and the inside filled in afterwards. That this was the case is shown by the fact that the wall is separate and not faced on to the rubble in any way. The fallen southwest corner, in like manner, shows how the addition to the building was made. A wall was built out of the desired distance from the main structure, and the space between the two filled up with rubble and earth. It will be obvious to every reader that this mode of building was a weak one. The heavy weight of loose rubble and earth enclosed in a wall between two and three feet thick was not a very substantial foundation for a heavy building. Naturally, the tendency would be for the walls to bulge and crack, spelling ruin to the whole building. But now, let us turn from the foundations to the buildings themselves. Mr. Henry C. Mercer, in his book, Hill Caves of Yucatan, Philadelphia, 1896, is very outspoken on this subject. On page 95, he says, The more we examined the walls, the more we wondered not so much at their antiquity as at the fact that they had not already crumbled to the ground. A facing of blocks shaped like the letter V pushed mosaic fashion into a central pudding like concrete of stone and mortar was a weak form of construction. Neither were the face stones interlocked systematically so as to bind the joints. Everything was slipping out of place. No wonder there were fresh cracks in the walls, that whole facades tumbled, and that overseers of haciendas had spoken of structures that had lost their identity in twenty years. Mr. Mercer is right. When one considers the hopelessly slipshod manner of their building, one is obliged to admit that the wonder is that all the Mayan palaces and temples have not already crumbled to the ground. There was only one method of building in Yucatan, and it is difficult to say how this was carried out. The walls average about two feet three inches in thickness, and were made up as follows. Ten inches of stone on the outside, about seven to eight on the inside, and the space intervening between these two surfaces is filled with a mixture of mortar and rubble. The outer surface wall was generally formed of solid square or oblong stones of various sizes. No care was taken to bind them one with the other, as in the Egyptian and modern buildings. We often noticed the joints of the stones coming directly one above the other for as many as three or four layers, the result generally being a large gaping crack where the wall had bulged at this weak spot. Another weak point in these outer walls is the fact that the crevices between the two layers of stone are often filled up with stone chips. As often as not, these were wedge-shaped and had been driven into the mortar between the layer and then smoothed off, level with the face of the building. As the mortar dried and the building settled, these chip wedges tended to loosen, and after a series of rainy seasons ended by falling out altogether.
some of the better-placed ones are still in position, though these may have been added only a few years before the coming of the Spaniards, and, as the buildings had then quite settled, have retained their position to the present day. But such a method is obviously a weak spot in building. Weaker still is the method employed in the building of the inner wall. Most of the stones are pyramidal, or V-shaped, as Mr. Mercer calls them. They are in fact wedge-shaped pieces of stone, as seen in the cut on page 264, embedded in the mortar and rubble of the interior of the wall, the thick end of the wedge forming a flat surface for the wall. Here again, as the wall subsided after the building was finished, these were pushed out of place or loosened by the weight above them. Once this took place, there was no hope for any building. A block that had been pushed out generally meant the loosening of the stones around, and in time the whole façade would fall. But often, over the face of the stones, was put a thick layer of plaster, which is in many cases still in position, speaking well for its durability. This plaster, as often as not two or three inches thick, kept the stone in position. The same slipshod methods are seen in the ornamentation of the building. The small colonnade at Labna is an example in point. The columns were not embedded in the wall, at the top or bottom, but, half-rounded, were stuck onto this concrete interior without the least solid stone masonry as support. The common type of roof is flat, the only exceptions being those which have superstructures rising in the center or front for purely ornamental purpose. The cut on page 264 gives a section in which the roof is portrayed. The outer wall is carried up with its usual average thickness to the top of the building. The interior is the regular type of arch, also shown in illustration, formed by blocks of stones placed one above the other in such a way as to appear like about ten inverted steps. To add a better finish to the interior, after these were in position, they were trimmed off evenly, making a flat sloping surface, which was afterwards plastered and painted. The arch did not come to a point. Instead, across its top a slab was laid, as our illustration shows. Between the outer side of this arch and the inner side of the perpendicular outer wall of the building, the space was filled up with the same concrete rubble as was used between the walls, making a level roof which in some cities, we found, had been cemented over. The result of this weight of loose stone pressing on the sides of the arch was that as soon as the inner wall of the arch became weak, the whole roof fell in, and filled up the building. This is what has happened in the ruins of old Chichen. The walls are found amid the debris of fallen roofs. This is what is happening today 
in the other buildings in Chichen and elsewhere in the peninsula. And this is what will happen until all these ancient structures have become roofless ruins. And that time is not far off. Old Chichen has fallen. The Chichen standing today is fast falling to pieces. Ukshmal has no great lease of life before it, and the buildings of Labna, Kaaba, and Sayil are tottering. Lastly, we would say something of the building of doorways in these cities. The lintels of the doors are almost invariably formed of the wood of the Central American sapota tree, Akras sapota. The wood is very hard, durable, and heavy, and in a dry climate would last practically forever. But the climate of Yucatan can scarcely be termed dry, for the wet season averages five months. Despite this fact, we find those sapota beams at Chichen, which have not been exposed to the weather, in fairly good preservation. The decay of one, which was exposed, has caused the falling of a room in the castillo on the north side, and this has also taken place in the room on the west side of the House of Tigers. Possibly, this was the cause of the falling of the front of the temple at the north end of the tennis court. Chichen stands on high ground compared with Uxmal, where scarcely a lintel can be found in position today, though Uxmal is not older than Chichen. At Labna and Kaba again are lintels still in good preservation, owing to those cities being built on the Sierras. This question of the condition of the lintels, even in the most favorable situations, is very suggestive in regard to the dates to be assigned to the majority of the ruins. If the thousand-odd years ascribed to them by enthusiasts really represented their age, there would not be a single lintel found anywhere. When to the slipshod methods of building, one must add the fact that the climate is a trying one for any style of architecture, and that the friability of the limestone used is excessive, one realizes that no very great date can be assigned to the ruins still standing. To date even approximately each city is almost impossible. The ruins of many of them point to several dates for each. Some buildings are intact, others are falling, while some are mere crumbling heaps. No doubt, none of the larger cities were built all at once. They represented years of labor. For example, the palace at Sayil might have taken a score of years. In most cities, the first building attempted was probably a temple. Possibly a century might have elapsed before a second temple or a palace was put up. And thus, today, you naturally have mere heaps of stone close to buildings still intact. In most places, we were able to determine the relative ages of the buildings. On many sites, there were traces of the earliest erections marked by fallen mounds. There was often a middle period between these 
and that represented by the buildings still standing. At Chichen there were, as we have said, two distinct periods, but these were obviously far apart in date. Those of the first period were probably in building within a century of the arrival of the foreign architects, and fell probably at or about the time the second set of buildings were put up. Structures built in the manner of those standing at Chichen today could not by any possibility remain intact in a climate like Yucatan's, if indeed anywhere, for a period longer than about 600 years. Thus, if they were built about the 8th or ninth century, they would be far advanced in ruin at the conquest. After a most careful survey, we think that the ruins of Chichen standing today were built at or about the fall of Mayapan. 1426 or 1462. There was no doubt a great recrudescence of building throughout Yucatan after this event. History affords many examples of the fact that a great victory is celebrated by the conquerors on the return to their centers, setting up temples and palaces commemorative of their success. The dissensions and intrigues leading up to the overthrow of the powerful cacique of Mayapan, had probably for some years before that event checked building enterprise throughout the peninsula. At the conclusion of the war, an impulse to city beautifying was experienced. Probably the next greatest chief of Yucatan, after the vanquished lord of Mayapan, was the cacique of the Itzas of Chichen, and on the success of the confederation, of which it may be presumed, he was an important member. He built himself a new city on the site of his already decaying one. At about the same time, the group of cities of the south, Uxmal, Kaba, Labna, and Sayu, were restored or rebuilt. The building zeal during the century, previous to the conquest, seems to have reached a high pitch. The outlying ruins in Yucatan, such as El Meco, Tulum, those on Isla de Mujeres, and those which we discovered on the islands of Cozumo and Cancun, represented an outer ring of Mayan civilization. Their builders had evidently never learned the art of the finest carving. The ruins are peculiarly devoid of ornamentation, and the whole style is uncouth, and suggests crudity. In a like manner, a rough knowledge of building spread far into the south. Thus today, between big ruined centers such as Copan, Piechas Negras, and Palenque, we find smaller towns, some of the buildings of which are still intact. What happened in Mexico? The knowledge of building had spread over the whole of the plateau, within the few centuries succeeding the founding of Copan. There would only be the one period, the one wave of building which would wash into Mexico before news of the wonderful art reached the ears of the ever warlike Aztecs, to whom such accounts would suggest much wealth and a country worth pillaging. They may have found the wealth of Mexico 
in its then undeveloped state disappointing, but they evidently quickly grasped the advantage stone houses had over skin wigwams, always needing repair and always jolly. Conquering the Mayans and christening them Toltecs, they set them to work to build cities. Aztec deities were, for the most part, substituted for the Mayan gods. Such blood-loving gods as Huitzilopochtli, in whose honor the historians assert tens of thousands of human beings were sacrificed, were purely of Aztec origin. The serpent worship so dear to the Aztec's forefathers, the Shoshones, was much more in evidence than it had ever been among the Mayans. Very speedily, the influence of the warlike Aztecs spread over the country southward until, as some historians say, they reached Mayapan in Yucatan. Certainly, they must have reached Honduras, where Dr. Gann, British commissioner at Corosal, told us he had found distinct traces of Aztec culture. But this was at a period not many years before the coming of the Spaniards. It may even have been so late that Cortez, who was destined to be the conqueror of these conquering upstarts, the Aztecs, had already heard of wonderful Yucatan, which had been termed Isla Rica, and which, a few years later, formed the stepping stone to his complete, if inglorious, conquest of Mexico. Summarizing, then, the arguments of this chapter, we would venture to say that the building civilization of Central America flourished between the 8th century and the coming of the Spaniards in 1517. The sequence of cities, as near as can be judged, would be as follows. 1. Copan and Quirigua, the first, or among the first, erected during the 8th century. 2. Piedras Negras and Yaxalan with possibly some undiscovered, follow closely in date. 3. The ruins of Palenque, probably contemporaneous with the last-mentioned groups, was a city from the earliest building period, but its palace was restored or rebuilt at a much later date. 4. The mounds of fallen debris found throughout Yucatan represent the first buildings in that country, and date from about the ninth to the eleventh century. 5. Those buildings that have more recently fallen represent the Middle Age of the building civilization, dating from the twelfth to the fourteenth centuries. 6. Those buildings standing today belong to the latter period, and date from the beginning of the fifteenth century until the coming of the Spaniards in 1517. End of section 26. Recording by Jairus Amar.